Hello, my name is Rob Carnell, and in my podcast series, I'm going to talk about a number of issues in modern macroeconomics that get right up my nose. Now, while some of the subjects might seem a bit esoteric, they all deal with things that affect our everyday financial lives, and I'm going to use a lot of intuitive examples to explain them. So don't be put off, it'll be a lot of fun. In this podcast, I'm going to be tackling one of what I think may be one of the worst ideas in recent monetary policy. And let's face it, there is extremely stiff competition for this. Of all the subjects I cover these days, few things make me angrier than negative interest rates. So why do I think negative rates are such a bad idea? Well, if there's one policy that seems almost designed to make us all poorer, it's this one. And some people would say that central banks have been doing a very good job at doing that anyway, without inventing new and more ridiculous ways to make us all worse off. And honestly, I find it surprising that for a policy which does seem to split the profession right down the middle, it doesn't arouse greater fury. As part of my day job, one of the most enjoyable things I've done this year is write a rebuttal to a piece by the famous US economist Kenneth Rogoff. He'd written in a Vox EU paper that he thought substantially negative interest rates were the way forward. I won't summarise his argument. It's actually so much easier and quicker to rubbish it if I don't. But if you want to read his views for the sake of balance, you can find it or a version of the paper I critiqued by just Googling Rogoff negative rates Vox or something like that. Maybe you can dig out my own critique while you're at it, like I could do with a readership boost. So why are negative rates such a bad idea, in my opinion? I'll get there eventually, but let me build slowly to the denouement. I think it's much more fun to do it that way. To set the scene, let's start with a bit of observational economics. There's a reason I've acquired some less than flattering nicknames over my career. The Voice of Doom, for example. Victor Meldrew, to name another. I don't believe it! But in all fairness, my career has been kissed full on the mouth by catastrophe wherever I've laid my brief. Put it this way, if you want to have a prosperous and uneventful life, do not ask me to cover your economy. It will collapse. From Japan's 1990 asset bubble and subsequent bust, to the Asia crisis in the late 1990s, US recessions of the noughties, to the global financial crisis, European debt crisis, and now this pandemic. It has been one long list of disasters. About the only crisis I don't feel I've caused are the savings and loan, the dot-com crash and the Russian debt default. The rest are all mine. And over that period, as various central banks have responded to each disaster with yet another dollop of monetary largesse and rates fell lower and lower, I have noticed something. Sure, there would be some positive market response to policy changes as they happened, but aside from the immediate dynamic response to a change, the impact of lower rates always seemed to do less and less as rates fell lower and lower. For an analogy to help this process along, do you remember in the good old days when we used to get pay rises? Okay, I know only those of us with incredibly long memories will be aware of what I'm talking about, but bear with me a moment. In the months running up to this theoretical pay rise, you would struggle to make your monthly pay eke out until the next paycheck and live on cold baked beans out of the tin for the last few days until the end of the month. Then, the day of that glorious pay rise and the strange sensation of your salary not just lasting till the end of the month, but there being a little something left over at the end. Now tell me, 
How many months did that feeling last? Two? One? Not long, I'd wager. And then, before you know it, the buffer has all gone and you're struggling to make it to the end of the month yet again. Now, interest rates aren't much different to pay rises, especially when half your salary is being eaten up in payments on mortgages, credit cards and student loans, then a chunky interest rate cut is going to provide a nice boost to disposable incomes and maybe even spending for a short period. And that is exactly what the policymakers intend with such policy changes. But typically, when rates fall, we don't just pocket the extra cash, but use the opportunity of lower interest rate payments to load up on even more debt. Our behaviour tends to deliver fairly constant debt service payments, so that we take on more debt when it comes cheaper, but keep the amount we spend on debt service about the same as a proportion of our salary. And maybe this response is because, although borrowing can become cheaper, the things we borrow money to be able to afford can be made more expensive by the policies that are supposed to make us feel better off. Housing is a great example of this. You cut rates to ease mortgage payment stress, but in the process put up house prices for everyone, so that for each dollar or pound or euro of mortgage borrowing, you get less house. So you may like the fact that rate cuts have raised the value of your home to several million dollars, but you may not like the fact that you still live in a pokey apartment above a pizza shop. Anyway, let's not get too bogged down in this. The simple message from all of this is the following. Rate policy is non-linear in its effect. Remember this, we'll come back to this point repeatedly and ever more forcefully. Because what I'm arguing is, not only does monetary policy lose its pep as rates fall lower and lower, but there comes a point, maybe even when rates are still positive, when further easing does more harm than good. That's right. At this stage, the economy might actually benefit marginally more from rate hikes than cuts. In almost all economics textbooks, the impact of rate policy is described by something called the ISLM framework. It's a simple idea, but at its heart, what central banks are doing isn't much more complicated than this macro 101 idea, and that's half the problem. In a graphical representation of this ISLM framework, a straight line sloping downward and to the right from the vertical y-axis towards the horizontal x-axis is used to represent the trade-off between savings and investment, the so-called IS curve, though critically it isn't shown as a curve but as a straight line. The horizontal x-axis represents GDP and the vertical y-axis is interest rates. This would be so much easier to do as a video. Anyway. What the IS line indicates is that as rates fall, or equivalently, the money supply rises, GDP will increase. Intercepting this downward sloping line is an upward sloping line, the LM curve, which represents where monetary policy sits. The further down and to the right this line intercepts the IS line, the lower are rates and the more expansionary is monetary policy, and the higher is GDP. Where I think economists like Ken Rogoff go wrong is that they actually believe this represents the real world and is not just a simple teaching model. Like most of the rest of economics, the theories aren't wrong per se, it's just that they are so simplified to make teaching them simpler, and in the process we stop thinking about what we're actually saying and lose all the detail and nuance. All that this ISLM framework needs to make it work is a non-linear IS curve at low levels. In other words, the curve needs to be curved. 
Isn't that what defines any curve? Not straight. It also looks likely that in the real world, at some low level, this IS function actually curves back on itself towards the origin. I know this is hard to picture in your head, but let me offer another example to explain what I mean and how this nonlinearity can work. And part of the explanation for all this may lie in the miracle of compounding, which is one of the few things I've picked up at university, apart from an ability to speed drink beer. Suppose, for example, that you are a 30-year-old and wanting to save into a pension fund. And out of your employment income, you can afford to save 10,000 units, whatever they are, dollars, pounds, euros per year. Let's call it dollars for the sake of argument. And you'll do this for 30 years until you are 60. It wasn't that many years ago that you could pick up, say, 4% on long-term savings products. And at even that relatively low rate of 4%, if you undertook the savings approach outlined previously, that is $10,000 per annum, from 30 until age 60, you would, thanks to the miracle of compounding, TM, have a savings pile at the end of that 60th year of a little under $600,000. Moreover, without even touching the principle of that saving, you could live on a 4% interest income from those savings of slightly more than $23,000 a year. Start eating into that principle in a sensible fashion and you could retire, well, maybe not comfortably, but adequately. Now let's cut the interest rate to only 0.5%, still positive, and even more than most of us get from savings accounts these days, and not much less than a 10-year US Treasury bond either. So if we now do the same savings, by the time we are 60, our savings pot is, well, only just over $300,000, not much different to a zero interest rate case, and that is because, as interest rates approach zero, their behaviour starts to approximate an additive process, whereas for slightly higher rates, they tend towards multiplicative process, which is essentially what the miracle of compounding is all about. At 0.5% interest rates, the income on the final savings pot is a measly $1,600 per year, enough to guarantee that you starve to death, though mercifully quite quickly. In other words, at higher rates, the market does a lot of your savings for you. Now, here's a question. How much more would you need to save if you wanted your savings at 0.5% to deliver you an income the same as you would get with an interest rate of 4%? Twice as much? Three times? The answer, it turns out, is more than 14 times as much. To generate the same income at 0.5% rates, you would need to save over $140,000 a year if you were to live only on the income from those savings, requiring an income pot of more than $4.6 million. In the previous example, I was only assuming that 10,000 savings a year represented about 10% of incomes. So 140,000 a year is just totally off the charts. So when central bankers pat themselves on the head for not only lowering rates to virtually zero, but then tell us with their forward guidance that this will not likely change in our lifetimes, there's a group of people for whom this is very, very bad news indeed, and for whom the most logical response to lower rates is not to save less and spend more, but to save every last penny they earn to make up for the loss of compounded savings and negligible earnings potential. 
And that is where the backwards bending, that's non-linear again, savings function, or IS curve comes in. Traditional theory tells us that as rates decline, the opportunity cost of present consumption to future consumption drops. That is, we can borrow more or save less, enjoy our cake and eat it today, and have not too much more to pay back the following period. There is an additional point to bear in mind here, and that is that the interest rate is basically the price of money. And like all commodities, a falling price can have two effects. Talking of eating cake, if the price of cake falls, we can have more cake relative to all other goods, even if our income doesn't change. But if cake prices fall a lot, then we can have more cake and then still have enough left over to have more of all other goods too. The two effects are respectively called the substitution effect, where you can have more cake when cake prices fall, and the income effect, where you can have more of everything, including cake, if cake prices fall. The same is true for money and interest rates. But whereas the previous example involved cake and other goods, with money, the substitution effect is about more consumption spending now as opposed to later. Interest rates are a temporal price. And the income effect is just how much spending in total over all periods you can have. And in the end, the income effects of lower interest rates will only be positive if households have more debt than they have savings. And that doesn't sound like a very sustainable pattern to me. Kenneth Rogoff reasons along the following lines. If we set interest rates to be strongly negative, say 10%, then we will be driven to spend more today because if we, say, have an income of $20,000 and borrow a further $10,000, we can spend $30,000 now and then only have to pay back $9,000 next period thanks to negative interest rates. If we have another $20,000 income in the next period, this enables us to spend $41,000 in total, $30,000 now and $11,000 next period. In contrast, suppose interest rates were plus 10% and we tried the same trick. We have income of $20,000, we borrow a further $10,000, but the next period we have to pay back $11,000, so actually our maximum spending over the two periods is only $39,000, 30000 plus 9000 Sounds simple enough. But this is a brainless example. For most of the population, what we are really dealing with is a two-period model where the first period, work life, has income, and a second period doesn't, that's retirement, and has to be funded from savings. The two-period model above works because there are earnings in both periods. It also works because it assumes no net savings. If in the previous model you add almost any amount of savings in excess of borrowing, the calculation breaks down. For Kenneth Rogoff's world to work with negative rates, none of us should save. We should spend all of our income and then borrow more on top of that, as we won't have to pay back as much in the end. But crucially in the real world, what we borrow still does have to be paid back, even if the principal is reduced with negative rates. And how do we do that once retired if we have no income and no savings? It doesn't help to just shovel the borrowed money into the stock market, as we cannot be sure what that will be worth when it comes time to repay our debts. Maybe it will be fine, maybe not. The more appropriate example would be a two-period model with an income in period one and repayment of debts but no income in period two, and also would include some net savings, which would be reduced by negative interest rates. Rogoff's world only works if we don't have to worry about how we pay for groceries when we're retired. 
Maybe that's a reasonable assumption for a tenured Harvard professor. But for the vast majority of the population, it isn't. In the more reasonable approximation to the real world, negative rates do encourage borrowing in period one as the substitution effect kicks in. But this is considerably outweighed at low rates by the income effect, which, with positive savings, means that we have less income overall over the two periods. Moreover, in the real world, it isn't total consumption that matters. I can't live off memories of gorging at banquets in period one when I am retired. I need money to pay for groceries then. I need money to pay for utilities then. I need money to pay my rent then. What I actually need to do is not just maximise my income and consumption, but to maximise my smoothed income and consumption over both periods. And to do that, I need savings. What all of this boils down to is the following. In the real world, with reasonable assumptions about household savings, household debts and incomes, and not forgetting demographics, all this stuff becomes so much more worrying when you hit your 40s and 50s. As rates decline, the boost to near-term spending from substitution effects diminishes relative to the income effects until at some point they are dominated by them and further rate cuts actually encourage more saving to make up for future income losses, all helped along by the miracle of compounding, which means that both the losses to savings and the gains to income are non-linear but in different directions. And the net effect of the two is to deliver a negative response to lower rates at conceivably positive but low nominal interest rates. Now, if all this seems a bit esoteric and textbookish, bear in mind that right now, two economies very close to one another are taking a very different approach to negative interest rates. These are Australia and New Zealand. Like most economies these days, they've already exhausted the possibilities of orthodox monetary policy. Both have adopted yield curve control policies and both have given strong forward guidance that they aren't going to tighten monetary policy for ages. But while the Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Philip Lowe has made clear his reservations about negative rates, noting the balancing point for rates doing more harm than good, his opposite number in New Zealand, Dr Adrian Orr, continues to talk up the merits of this dreadful policy. Now, Dr Adrian Orr is a smart guy and my money is on this simply being an attempt to keep the New Zealand dollar from appreciating too far. A bit of negative rate rhetoric can be a useful market foil when the New Zealand dollar is on an appreciating path, as it has often been at times during this pandemic. Just so long as he never actually does it. That way, madness lies. Right, well that's it. So I hope I've persuaded you that negative rates are a bad idea and economists like Ken Rogoff are, in my opinion, talking nonsense. And I will get extremely cross with anyone who, like him, uses the term cash hoarding with me. It's called saving. How else otherwise am I going to be able to afford to go down the pub when I'm retired? Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been prepared by ING solely for information purposes, irrespective of a particular user's means, financial situation, or investment objective. The information does not constitute investment recommendation, 
and always the investment, legal or tax advice or an offer of solicitation to purchase or sell any financial instrument. Read more at think.ing.com slash content dash disclaimer.